take our Bibles. Let's go to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 139. We'll be there uh, in, in a few minutes. Good to see you this morning, last Sunday of June. By the way, had a great week at VBS. Um, Carrie Davis and I got, thank you, Daniel, got pied in the face and my beard smelled like milk for about five hours on Wednesday night. Hey, our kids took up um, more than $1,000 for um, the, the mission in Orlando that we looked at last week. Our students will, hit, hit, uh, will, will go next week and, and serve. That was pretty incredible. And uh, we just had a great week. Everybody that served, we want to thank you um, for serving our children um, in that capacity. Great week of VBS. And um, also... Just uh, thankful for um, a church that believes in families and serving families. And that's the thing, right? If we don't serve families, all of us will go be with Jesus one day and there'll be nobody left, right? So uh, as Justin preached last week from Psalms, we're to, to tell the mercies of the Lord to the coming generation. Hey, um, as you're praying this week for um, our, our team going to the Dominican Republic, pray for me. I'm leaving tomorrow. I'll be out for two weeks. Um, I'm going to a Dry Creek camp, which is in southwest Louisiana. I'm preaching two back-to-back student camps. We should have anywhere three to 400 students this week and then um, next week. And so I'll be preaching about five times um, over the next uh, week and then do it again the week after. So I'd appreciate um, your prayers. All right, we had uh, several questions that have been coming in, and we appreciate you guys um, Sending them in. I just want to tackle one real quick, and and uh, we we do have several that have come in, so we're just tackling one a Sunday. So if we don't get to yours like today, we'll we'll tackle it. We've got several more Sundays, and if we get a lot of questions, we'll just keep doing this, uh, you know, into into the fall. Here's uh, the question: Should we embrace the regulative principle in our weekly gathering? Some of you say, "What is the regulative principle?" Um, I was thankful. I told Justin. I said I just reviewed a book uh, in in. A seminar for this. The regulative principle basically states that everything we do in a corporate worship service is regulated by scripture, or what we do in a gathering like this should only be dictated by what scripture says. So we go to the New Testament, and guess what we find? We find them taking the Lord's Supper together. We find apostolic teaching. We find prayer. We find fellowship. And so the question is, is there anything outside of what we specifically find in the New Testament that we can't do or we shouldn't do on Sunday morning? Um, like, for example, the reason why we don't play like top 100 billboard hits is because we don't believe that like they opened up the uh, worship at Jerusalem with the songs of the Philistines, right? So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a point to that, right? But the question is, is there meaningful and biblical um, precedents for us for what we do on Sunday morning, right? Does the scripture regulate or is the scripture give, give freedom at all? Um, I would say, and, and I was thankful for another book that I've been reviewing. This is all I do now. Ask Lauren, by the way, by the way, my wife whipped me in, in, in working in the yard yesterday. Like she didn't whip me, but like compared to what she did and what I did, she whipped me. So I actually didn't read yesterday, but I, I've been looking at this book called Global Church Planning, and I like the take that they have. This is it. In order to avoid normalizing the narrative accounts in Scripture, we must distinguish with three degrees of relevance, prescriptive, descriptive, and representative. And what what it means by that is when we read the New Testament, we see what the church did. Is it there prescribing for us 
do this all the time. Don't do anything but this. Is it describing what happened or is it launching out principles in ways that we have freedom? I think that's a healthy way to view it simply because if something is prescribed for us in the New Testament and Jesus says, do that, guess what? We want to be doing that, right? But there's some parts like where, where the apostles are like healing people all the time and, and the shadow of, of Paul or Peter is falling on people and, and the Lord blesses them. Like, I, I don't want to get into like pastors in Jones County walking around, making sure that the sun hits their body right so that their shadow cast on people so that pe- they think people get healed in their shadow, right? See what I'm saying? So, so there comes a limit where we look at the New Testament and we say, what did Jesus tell us to do? And at the same token, are there things that we can do for the benefit of the body in the gathering that does not go against what Jesus told us to do in any way? Like, for instance, this morning, guess what we did? We prayed for a mission team. You know why? Because that's what they did in the New Testament, right? What are we about to do? We're about to open God's word and teach it. So I, would, I wouldn't be so strict, and this is for really the person that asked the question, I wouldn't be just so strict where Scripture regulates everything and only what scripture says should we do because I think there are principles in scripture that we can apply in our local congregational context that don't contradict scripture and yet benefit the body in the spread of the gospel. So what? Mostly regulative, maybe a little bit of freedom, okay? If you don't care about that, awesome. I had to answer the question, okay? Psalm chapter 139. The benefit though, and let me just add to that, is the point of it, and I appreciate the question, and the question is very important, because how do we know how to do a public gathering? The scripture. Like, we don't get together and say, what do we do on Sunday morning? Let's just make up something out of left field. Because we find in the word of God what the church did when they assembled, and that should be the basis from which we do our worship. I was preaching Psalm 67 until Friday at about 10, 10 a.m. Missionary uh, hymn, we were going to look at that, send our students out next week, sending out DR team this week. Psalm 67, very precious to my heart. But something happened Sunday or uh, Friday morning. A decision was released by the United States Supreme Court on the case of Dobbs versus Jackson, Jackson Women's Health Organization. The Supreme Court held the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion, went on to say, we do not pretend to know how our political system or society will respond to to today's decision overruling Roe and Casey. And even if we could foresee what will happen, we would have no authority to let that knowledge influence our decision. We can only do our job, which is to interpret the law, apply law-standing principles, and decide this case accordingly. We therefore hold that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey must be overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion must be returned to the people and their elected representatives. I think it's very important, as pastors, we set forth a, a, a schedule of where we're headed. 
But sometimes things happen that are so big that we would be doing you and ourselves an injustice to not interpret them in light of Scripture. So something that our society has been talking about, fighting for, fighting against for 50 years, happened Friday. 1973 Supreme Court case called Roe versus Wade that granted a constitutional right to an abortion was overturned. And I want to approach it this morning. I I told the team this morning at our meeting, I want you to hear me this morning approaching this text, not as a blue donkey or a red elephant, but as a worshiper of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I'm not here this morning to critique a decision or to spike a football in celebration or to point fingers. I'm here to declare what scripture says about something our society has been talking about for 50 years. So let God be true and every man a liar. It was Spurgeon that said the good preacher has the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And so I find it awesome that we're in Psalms this summer and this historical moment in our country has happened. And so I want to turn your attention not to Washington, D.C., but to Psalm 139 and pray that God will help us this morning. Amen? Psalm 139. Let's read it. You will eat lunch today, I promise. Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the night about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of God. It's a Psalm of David. And if you'll notice at the beginning, it was to the choir master. I mean, this is, if we're dealing with like top 100 songs, like this is one of them, right? Like he's, David's saying, this will be like Justin and me coming to Daniel be like, dude, sing this song, which we don't try to do. Okay. I think sometimes we may, you know, do that, suggest things. This is what David is saying. Hey, bro, hey, hey, I want this sung. All the people, all the people need to, to declare this. 
And this psalm is one of the most personal psalms in the Psalter. Because it not only deals with the personal nature of a baby being formed in the womb, but it deals with a personal presence of God, a personal thoughts about God, of God for someone. And it ends in a very personal way. Because David's like, hey, I hate these people. We'll get to that this morning. I find this really interesting. And notice we're not going to skip over that. We're going to talk about that this morning. But at the end, what is it? It's personal. It's a personal searching. Search me, oh God. This entire psalm meant for the people of Israel is extremely personal. The title of the message this morning is the deep value of our lives to God. Now, the way we're going to walk through this is the way that David does this, because it's very important. When we start thinking about the value of ourselves before God, it's very easy to turn right really quick and end up in a huge ditch of self-worship, self-sufficiency, and self-glorification. That I am somebody, that God values me. But what I want you to see this morning is we are valuable to God, not because of something about us, but because of who he is. And God has placed value upon us. So sometimes we see it in like modern worship songs that there's so much focus that that God could not think to, to dwell without us. So he sent his son. No, God doesn't worship and glorify human beings. The end of all things is the glory of God, and God in his great, he just felt like it, you matter to me. And so guess what? When we believe what God says, we bring glory to God. And so I don't want you to go into the other ditch that I don't have any value whatsoever. No, listen to me. You are more than just a clump of cells. You have intrinsic value because you matter to God. Why? Because the scripture teaches it. So what I want us to do this morning, we're going to look at three different attributes of God that David walks through. And because of the character of God and these attributes, David says, because God is that way, I have value because these attributes of eternal, infinite God are applied to my my small human life. Big truth number one this morning, we have value because God is omniscient. All three of these attributes this morning all begin in the same way. Omni, which is all. We're going to see omniscience. We're going to see omnipresence. We're going to see omnipotence. And what David is doing is he is praising God for who he is, and then he is rejoicing in the fact that who God is has been personally directed towards him, and he's in awe of it. What is omniscience? Wayne Grudem has this definition. Omniscience is that God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible at once. And your mind just blew up. Mine too. So just notice the first part of omniscience. God fully knows himself. It's been said before, you know why we will be with God for all eternity? Because it will take us all all eternity to know an eternal God. If the Lord were to show us 10,000 things about himself today, it would still require eternity to get to know him. But God's omniscience says that God already knows everything about himself, and God knows all things, whether they could happen or whether they do happen, at once. God knows like the actual 
value of what the number Google is. God knows exactly to the star how many stars there are in the galaxy. God knows how many hairs are on your head. For some of you, it doesn't take him long, right? I mean, God knows every cell in your body. God knows how your life will turn out. God knows what your life could have turned out. He's omniscient. And notice what David says. Oh, Lord, you have searched and know me. Notice the past tense. God has already searched. David's still living his life, but God is fully already aware of knowing everything about David already. David's like, there's things I don't know about myself, right? Some of y'all have been married a long time and you found out something new, right? There was a man every Saturday morning, made breakfast for his wife. Every Saturday morning, gave her the end piece that only has like the one good side. 40 years of marriage, one Saturday morning, she goes off on him. You give me this piece of bread every Sunday morning, every Saturday morning. I don't like this piece. He's like, but it's my favorite piece of the loaf. For 40 years, he'd been thinking he was serving her and she hated it. And they had just found that out 40 years into marriage. And some of you may find out new things. Hopefully it's not like that. But he says, God already knows everything about me. Notice in verse two, you know, when I sit up, you know, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. You're acquainted with all my ways. This verse came to mind yesterday as I was moving some tools and got very frustrated. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. That's a scary verse or a hopeful verse, right? Especially during yard work. You hem me in. God, you have protected me even when I didn't even know it. That'll be great when we get to heaven and God shows us all the times he had our back and we didn't even realize it at the time, amen? You lay your hand upon me. And then he goes, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. The omniscience of God is not just that God knows everything about the universe. God knows everything about you. And God thinks of you. You ever been around somebody and they're really proud because they know somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody? You know what I'm talking about? I'm sure we get that a lot in Laurel, Mississippi, right? There was a guy in England during the reign of King George. I think Spurgeon tells this story. And this man just went around and told all his friends, the, the king spoke to me. King George spoke to me. But he never would tell them like what the king said. So somebody probably pressed him on it finally and said, what did the king say? What was the situation? Why did the king think of you and speak to you? He said, I was in the road and the king came by and the king said, get out of the road. Think about what we feel when somebody that we measure of earthly importance speaks to us or thinks of us and David goes, but God thinks of me. You know why you have value this morning? Here it is. God knows everything about me, yet he thinks of me. God knows all the good. God knows all the bad. God knows all the shady. God knows all the struggles. And you know what? The Lord perpetually, consistently thinks about you. He doesn't get in the lost in the clutter of 7 billion on this planet. He thinks of you personally, and you have value. Now, we'll see in just a moment 
you've got to take this into the spiritual realm because this is not just an inhabitant of earth. This is a member of the covenant community of God. He, David belongs to the people of God. So, so it's not just that David says, God you know, generically knows my profile. He knows everything about me. This is somebody that says, I am in a relationship with God. I know God. God knows me. God knows all the junk. God knows the Psalm 32. God knows the Psalm 51. And yet the Lord continually thinks of me child of God this morning, if you ever doubt your value before God, listen. Listen to the gospel of omniscience. The Lord thinks of you. You're continually in his mind. Secondly, this morning, we have value because God is omnipresent. Not just omniscient, but omnipresent present. David launches into these verses, and he's basically saying, where can I go and get away from you? And specifically, he mentions the Holy Spirit. Where can I go from your spirit? Notice he says, if I go really high to heaven, you're there. And then he says, if I make my bed in Sheol, this was the Jewish word for the afterlife, the grave. So if I go as high as I can go, guess what? You're already there. If I go as deep as I can go, guess what? You're already there. And then he he uses poetic language. If I could take the wings of the morning and fly out to the horizon of the sea, guess what? Your hand's still there. And guess what? You're still holding me there. And then he moves into a, 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 a picture of darkness. So if I go try to hide myself in darkness, guess what? You're still there because darkness is as light to you. The definition of omnipresence, this is by Charles Ryrie, theologian. God is everywhere present with his whole being at all time. If I were to take like a piece of masking tape, I had masking tape back there, but I didn't know if it would like mess up the stage because the stage is perfect and immaculate, doesn't need to get messed up, right? Yeah, right. If I took a piece of masking tape and stuck it here and went all the way over here, and we had, we had one piece of masking tape, and let's say that that piece represents all of human history, okay? So Garden of Eden, Exodus, David and Solomon, Life of Jesus, 2022, hopefully we don't have much masking tape to go. Hopefully Jesus is coming back, right? Let's just say that's human history. Omnipresence means this. It's not just at this one chronological moment in time that God is, his presence is in Laurel, Mississippi, Reykjavik, Iceland, Moscow, Russia, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and some like island in the Pacific, because that's what omnipresence means. It means that right now God is everywhere chronologically, right? or geographically. But omnipresence also means this, that God is just not at one place everywhere at this one point of the piece of masking tape. Omnipresence means is that at the same time, God is everywhere. And guess what? He's not just everywhere. He's before time, and he's after time, and he's above time, and he's under time, and he's in all places at all time forever. That's what the scripture teaches. If human history is a line, God is this room. (laughs) God created time. He's not bound by time. And what David is saying is, listen, there is no place in your life that you can go that you can't get away from God's presence. 
See, sometimes we view that like Adam and Eve, like they ran off in the bushes and here comes God, can't get away from God. But listen, this is the point. Think of it in the positive. In the worst day of your life, guess what? He's already there. In the worst moments of your life, in the greatest grief of your life, in the highest joys of your life, you did not enter into that situation with God not being there. He was already there. If I, go to, if I go up to the height of heaven and I have these just incredible joys and it's a mountaintop of my life and everything's good, guess what? God's already there. If I plunge into the worst days of my life, you're already there. What comfort is that? It's amazing to think that there is no place that keeps me from God's presence. There is no place that I go that he is not already there. Your life matters. You will never, there is no such place except maybe the cross that we can say is God forsaken. The scripture even teaches us that hell is not the absence of God's presence. It is the fullness of the wrath of God's presence. Revelation 14. One man said it this way, and I think this is good. We can seek and find God anywhere. Believers are never lonely. The wicked are never safe. So if you're a believer this morning, man, what hope and joy and peace floods your soul that God is always there. But check this out this morning. If you don't know Christ, it is my obligation as a minister of the gospel to warn you. You can outrun the love of God, but you cannot outrun the justice of God. There is one place that was God forsaken. It was the cross. Where the wrath of God was poured on the Son of God so that your sins might be forgiven. And then this morning, if you don't know him, stop running from him. You can't do it. Run to him. Throw yourself on the mercy of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, will cleanse you from all sin. That's the gospel. It's the gospel of omnipresence. It's amazing how Psalms brings this out. God has said, you know how much you matter to me? I will be with you always. Let's move into this third one. What's the third omni in the text? We have value because God is omnipotent. Our British brothers and sisters say omnipotent, the omnipotence of God. If omniscience is all-knowing and omnipresence is ever-present everywhere, what is omnipotence? Here it is. God is all-powerful and able to carry out everything that he wills to do. All power belongs to God. Now, if you were to demonstrate power in the human mind, we would our minds would go to like world's strongest man, right? Where those dudes' biceps are like bigger than like our whole body, right? And they're all from like either, you know, Sweden, Norway, or Finland. You know what I'm talking about? They turn over tires and throw things and. Just I don't I don't I don't want to feel what they feel. I mean, I know how my body took a beating yesterday after just doing a little yard work, right? But that's where our mind goes. Our our mind goes to world's strongest man. What what's a what's a demonstration of power? Well, it would be, you know, five hundred thousand American soldiers that would strike fear in the heart of enemies. But but what about the demonstration of the, the power of God? Would, would it be 
that we see the creation of stars and galaxies and supernovas? Would it be that the mount, the, the, the plain was a plain and it was fields and all of a sudden by the word of his power, the Himalayas come out of the ground and stand 20,000 feet in the air? David doesn't go to faraway galaxies. David doesn't go to mountains. It's very interesting here that to demonstrate the omnipotence of of God, David doesn't get huge. David goes to a womb as an example of the all power of God. And what does he say? Verse 13, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together. God, your works are wonderful because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I was being made in secret. I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I had an unformed substance. But look at this. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. I find it astonishing this morning, y'all, that David doesn't go to splitting the nuclear atom or the creation of galaxies to demonstrate the all-powerfulness of God. He goes to the creation of a human being in a womb to demonstrate it. having a discussion yesterday on Twitter, which is never really probably the ideal place to have a discussion. I was told this, life does not begin at conception, which I just replied back, well, when does it begin if something is actually developing? Is that not life? Within 28 to 48 hours of fertilization, the single cell divides from one cell to two cells, two to four, and so on. By 22 days, the baby's heart begins to beat. By six weeks, the baby begins to move and will turn away if the face is lightly touched. As early as six weeks and two days, brain waves have been recorded. By seven weeks, the baby is turning its head and moving its hands as individual fingers begin to form and eyes are developing rapidly. By the end of seven weeks, the heart is almost completely developed. By seven and a half weeks, the fingers are separate. The hands begin to meet in the middle. The eyelids are formed. Between seven and eight weeks, the baby forms 2,000 additional body parts. By eight weeks, the brain is so complex that it resembles the brain of a newborn. At eight weeks, breathing movements begin, even though there's no air in the womb, and you start seeing whether they're going to be a righty or a southpaw early on. By nine weeks, that one cell has multiplied to over a billion cells. 4,000 body parts and a dozen body systems now exist. At nine weeks, suck, sigh, swallow, and stretch, the four S. The face and hands and feet now respond to light touch. By 10 weeks, yawning and walking movements begin, and the fingerprints begin to form. By 11 weeks, the mouth and lips are fully formed. By 12 weeks... The baby can open and close its mouth and moves its tongue. The hands are fully formed. And y'all, that's only the first trimester. Weeks 13 to 16, eyebrows, eyelashes, nails, hair are formed. Teeth and bones become denser. Reproductive organs are formed. And y'all can start planning your gender reveal parties. By the end of the fourth month, the baby is six inches long and weighs four ounces. 
Week 16 to 22, the eyes move. The ears reach final position. The skin thickens. The toenails develop. At week 26, the lungs develop. At week 28, the eyes partially open. At week 29, kicks and stretches. At week 31, rapid weight gain begins because we are on final approach. That is the omnipotence of God. And you know why it's the omnipotence of God? Because that baby, that human, is the only thing in creation that once created will ultimately never cease to be because it is created in the image of God. That is the omnipotence of God. Not just that he brings mountains and galaxies into being, but he brings and weaves and forms little babies because when they are born, they ultimately live forever. The gospel of omnipotence. You matter to God because you were created to live forever. Isn't that good? It's more than a political issue. It's what God says about it. So as a result, Thinking about little babies, David starts talking about hating the enemies of God. Let's not skip over it. Let's deal with the text. Amen? He goes to verse 19, and he goes, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. And he starts talking about the, the, the enemies of God taking God's name in vain. In verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Can I just be honest? Like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching this as a Christian, okay? Like, like the real issue is whether or not you think you have a legal right to murder your own child. And when I think about people, like, I'm just like, like I asked one of my mentors the other day, I was like, can, can, I, can I begin to pray in precatory prayers, which is, this is what this is. And, and I don't think in the New Testament we should pray in precatory prayers. I think we should pray for God to have mercy and, and because we love our enemies, right? And so, so understand me, D David, David is expressing, as Justin says so many times, he's expressing his emotions in, in the presence of God. And sometimes, guess what? We don't need to like filter our emotions in the presence of God. We just need to tell God what's on our heart rather than trying to hide it. He already knows it, right? You know, so we might as well just tell him. And, and so David is just telling him. And I think there's a frustration in all of us just looking and be like, it's a baby. I know we have a few young ones in here. But if those who have stood, and I'm speaking generally here, have stood for the murder of babies, if they were forced to watch an abortion, they would either change their mind in about five seconds or yet their heart is so cold and hard, I pity them with tears. And again, listen, it's not a political issue. In any situation, if any political party gets it right according to Scripture, guess what? That political party ain't right. Let God be true in every man a liar. Right? What, what, what am I getting at? I'm getting at here that there is a frustration 
When we see people and we understand and we get it and we, God, we want to side with you and God, we want to believe what you say. The reality is, y'all, there are still people around that are not submitting to God's truth. So, so here's the answer, first and foremost. Don't go messing with them until you process and allow God to work in your own heart, which is what I want to get to as we close. Notice this fourth truth. Because of God's character, completely worthy of all our lives. Now, David does this in two ways. What we just read, slay the wicked. Get away from me, men of blood. Oh, God, I hate those. You know what David's basically saying? God, you and you alone are worthy of all my allegiance. If it comes down to this person and it comes down to you, God, guess what? I'm siding with you. That's tough today. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to make people mad. I was talking to a buddy this morning about this situation. This is what Christians struggle with. We love the truth. Amen? And yet we're called to love people who many of them don't believe the truth. And we find ourselves kind of bouncing back and forth. We can love the truth and be king jerk face to people, right, in the name of truth. Or we can love people to the point we don't want to hurt their feelings. And guess what? We, we compromise truth. And we need Holy Spirit to help us to love truth and love people. But when it comes down to it, Christian, this God who is constantly thinking of you, this God who is always with you, and this God who formed you and made you, he alone is worthy of your allegiance. John MacArthur said, David is not neutral towards these people. He will not alliance himself with them. Because of David's high thoughts towards God, he doesn't want to be associated with those that do not value what God values. Now we're told in the New Testament that we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. You know what that doesn't mean? That doesn't mean we never share the gospel, that we don't love lost people. How do we find our Lord living? He got called a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. You know why? Because he was around lost people. What David is getting at is, I do not ultimately side with people that hate God in order to, quote, be their friend. God has my allegiance. And just as the Son of God came into this world and loved sinners, so I, even though my citizenship is in heaven, I will love these people with the truth. But how does the psalm end? He prays. And what does he pray? I I love this because if Psalm 139 ended at verse 22, you'd say, man, David's like, like, yeah, like, get him, David. And then you would think through it again. You'd be like, it's probably not the best place to end that. Is he still mad? Like, is he still praying that? So how does the psalm end? David's like, hey, God, I just told you. I just vented at you. And but, But God, this is what I want you to do. God, I want you to search my heart. I want you to know my heart. I want you to try me. Come to me and know my thoughts. Convict me. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is how the psalm ends. God is not only worthy of our allegiance, God is worthy to search and lead us in our lives because he's always thinking of us, because he's always with us, and because this is the God that formed us. He has a right to my life. Not just to the living room. 
the guest bedroom where everything's piled up, being on the back corner of the closet and say, what's that? Because he purchased us with his blood. He's the Lord of my life. Human life matters to God because God has decreed it so. Any attempt to devalue human life is demonic. Satan always tries to devalue what God values. Satan fights against what God holds dearest to himself. And God has valued human life because of who he is. This won't be on the screen, but let me just give you a few thoughts, just bullet point as we conclude. Human life is valuable to God because we are the only thing in creation formed by the hands of God. Mountains, he said it. Stars, he said it. Oceans, he said it. Sun, moon, he said it. But what did he do? He took dirt. He made a man. He took a rib out of the man and made woman. Human life, as I've said before, is the only life in the physical creation that lasts forever. The Bible tells us that there will be a resurrection. And these bodies that have suffered decay, guess what? They'll put on immortality. And so we will forever be with the Lord. If you don't know Jesus today, don't let eternal separation from God be your destiny. Repent and believe the gospel and be reconciled to this great God. But I think this is awesome, y'all. Human life is how God sent his son into the world for our salvation. How amazing is it that just as we were knit together in our mother's womb, so the eternal Word was made flesh by being knit together. He, he, didn't, he didn't get like the drive-through version. It's nine months for Mary. And the incarnation is the express, uh, expression of the value of human life. Jesus wasn't partially human. He was fully human. And then listen to the glory of the gospel. It was in a human body that the Son of God sacrificed himself in our place for our sin. So, so let me conclude here because I think there's a lot of ways that we could apply this going forward. And, and, I, and I just want to, I guess, let me say two things. First, like, so many of you have prayed for a situation in our country like this. And so like your prayers have been answered. Like somebody told me walking in today, it's like, it's time for us to step up our game. Yep. Let's be pro-life after birth. But think about it this way. Whenever you want to stop and be like David and be like, just slay them, God, these people on social media and these people that just, just feel like they hate babies. Ah, I just, ah, just want to vent. I <coughs> just want to, ah. God should have poured out his wrath on you and me. And yet in his son, he has showed us mercy. And so guess what we do? We pray for those whose eyes have not been opened yet. Doesn't mean we don't stop speaking the truth, but we speak it in love. And again, I'm not talking political stuff here. I'm talking about a worldview absent of God's value upon human life. So in one way this morning, we can celebrate. And another way this morning, we can embrace our responsibility. But the most important thing to do today is to say, oh God, who am I? Small me, little me, you think of me, you're with me, you created me, you have all of me.
That's the response. So I hope this morning, as I started, you haven't heard me as an elephant or a donkey, but to help us understand what's happening in our culture through the lens of the line of the tribe of Judah. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your patience towards us. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that we have value because of who you are. We're thankful that you sent your son into the world just like us to set us free. To take on our sin. To save a people for yourself that we might be called the children of God. God, we're thankful that you matter most of all. And who you are matters most of all. And who you've saved us to be matters more than any conversation or political take on this planet or in this country. God, I do want to thank you for what happened Friday. I want to pray for your church as we live in this country to honor you with our lives and however you call us. Search us this morning. Lead us this morning. Work in us this morning. In just a few moments, Lord, when we take communion, the Lord's Supper, as we take the supper this morning, Lord, we, we ask that we will remember what Jesus did for us. And as a result, declare you worthy of all of our lives and all of our allegiance. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Lord, work this word in our hearts. Church, the way we'll respond this morning is just a few moments. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together as we do monthly here. But I just want us to, to be still for a few moments in prayer. Where has God spoken to you through the scripture this morning? Perhaps you need to pray. Maybe there's sin you need to confess. If you need Jesus this morning, if you don't know Christ, you don't know this great, great God, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, we'd love to talk to you. Justin's at the back by the sound booth. We also have ladies here for you ladies that would be able to be able to counsel and share the gospel with you. In this time of prayer, and even as we stand and sing in, in a few moments, if you need someone to talk to, Justin's right there at the back. We'd love to counsel with you and share with you. If you need Christ today, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, as we prepare to celebrate the death and the resurrection of our Lord, the second coming of our Lord, take a few moments to pray so that you can take out of gratitude, out of humility, out of thankfulness for him who gave his life 
for you. Let's pray.